This is Derek Bukema, pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today for Grounded and Growing in Christ here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Each weekday at this time, we open God's Word, exploring how it changes us and brings us closer to Him. Right now, we are in a message series called We Believe, focusing on the Gospel of John. All through this Gospel, John is driving us toward belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope and pray that as a result of this series, you will see new faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To hear all of the messages in this series, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And if you'd like to help provide financial support for this radio ministry, you can make a gift of any size at that same website, groundedandgrowingradio.com. If you're not already a part of a local church family, then I would like to invite you to visit us at Orland Park CRC this Sunday as we gather to worship the Lord and study His Word together. To find our service times and location information, just visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now, let's open God's Word to see what He has for us today. So now, John chapter 8. Let's, uh, let's read together and let's remember that this is God's word. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman... Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. 
And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Amen. As the gospel of John reaches its apex, which is the crucifixion and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus becomes more and more and more direct. More direct in his ability to forgive, like he does here in John chapter 8. More direct in talking about who he is. More direct in confronting the reality of sin. And as I mentioned last week in our sermon, this is the final time that Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem until Jesus uh, returns to Jerusalem to die and to be raised again from the dead. And so he's being as straightforward as possible here. The gospel of John being uh, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit and true is, is glorious and wonderful. And the gospel of John is also a glorious literary work. Each chapter builds on itself. And as we continue on here, you're going to see some of that building showing up here in 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 that propels us to Jerusalem again where Jesus will die and then be raised again from the dead. From John 8 through John 11, we have the clearest words from Jesus about who he is and the clearest signs. And the clear words are here in John chapter 8. The clearest signs will will be this climactic miracle that Jesus performs in John chapter 11 where he calls Lazarus out from the dead and he speaks a truth that he is the resurrection and the life and offers to us this problem that if we believe in him, we will never die. And so each one of these chapters is going to build up to that astounding miracle and then to Jesus going into Jerusalem again to die on the cross, to be buried, and to raise again from the dead. I'm grateful for the clarity that Jesus offers here, and I'm uh, I'm going to try to speak with the same level of clarity. So Lord, help me be clear. We're going to work our way through a few of these sections this morning, starting with the woman caught in adultery. And if your Bible is still open, I'd love for you to take a look with me specifically at the text here in John 8, the beginning of John chapter 8. If your Bible is open, and you know, I just would encourage you to take a look at this with me. Uh, if in, the, um, in your text, it should say, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And you might wonder, well, why did the editor of the English Standard Version put that in there? And I just want to talk about that briefly before we go into the story. And that is that the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John don't contain this story. And so the editors here of the English Standard Version just want to make that really clear. And I'm really glad that they do because it tells us we have such overwhelming textual evidence for the rest of the Gospel of John that the editors of this translation are just like, hey, We want you to know there's no tricks here. We want to be so clear so that the one area where there's a lack of clarity, we just call that out. 
we can have total clarity that, uh, that John chapter 1 through John chapter 21 is the word of God with this one exception. There are some questions about John, the beginning of John chapter 8. And because we have nothing to hide, given the reliability of the textual evidence, the, the editor is just like, hey, we're going to lay that out so that you're aware of it, so that you know we're not hiding a single thing. There are some, there's, this is a little bit of a disruption in the story. Some of the early church fathers, as they wrote their commentaries on the gospel of John, didn't contain this part in their commentary. They just skip right from the end of John chapter 7 to John 8 verse 12. The earliest texts don't have it. The, the verb tenses in this are not the way that John tends to tense his verbs. And you probably hear that you're like, well, that sounds way too academic. So let me just describe what would maybe set your mind thinking, I wonder if this is all written by the same person. If I got up and I said, you know, I have a letter to read you. And it started out something like, Welcome, y'all, to Orland Park Christian Reformed Church. So glad that y'all are here. Now, as I get to gather with all of you guys, we all come together, and you realize, oh my goodness, I think maybe somebody wrote you guys was different from the one using y'all. But, uh, you know, the way, that, the way that the language is used is just a little bit different here. It's actually more common to Luke than to John. I say that just so that you know that the Bible never has anything to hide. But D.A. Carson says that this is likely a genuine story. I mean, the story of Jesus and this woman caught in adultery is one that has deep historical attestation. And it actually does fit here in John in that in the prologue of John, we're told that Jesus operates with truth and grace, full of grace and truth. And here we see the grace and the truth of the Lord Jesus on full display. We also see how incredibly sharp the Lord Jesus is, how sharp and smart he is. So the story is that this woman is caught in adultery, which itself is curious. You never catch one person in adultery. It takes two. It's a two-person sin. So they bring the woman before him, and they're like, hey, the law of Moses says that we should stone her. And the editor here makes it clear, hey, this was all a trap. These people were not genuinely trying to keep the law of Moses. They were trying to ensnare Jesus. And Jesus demonstrates his own knowledge of the law of Moses better than the people who are trying to ensnare or trap him. And he actually quotes with his statement, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. He quotes directly referencing Deuteronomy 13 verse 9 and Deuteronomy 17 verse 7. And in Deuteronomy 13, 9 and Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, the law of Moses says that if there is to be a stoning, the witness of the crime that leads to stoning must be the first one to throw the stone. And they must not themselves be a participant in the crime. In the law of Moses, you couldn't set up a crime with another person, catch them in the crime, And then bring upon that person the punishment for the crime. You couldn't entrap someone in sin or you would experience the same penalty, the same punishment. And so when Jesus is saying, let him who's without sin cast the first stone, he's saying, all right, part of the law of Moses is for you to be the first one to throw the stone, you need to have seen the evil, seen the sin, seen the crime and not participated in it. So clever because it actually unravels the whole plot, the whole plan. It all comes apart because it seems that no one actually witnessed this adultery except by the person who participated in it. And that person couldn't throw the first stone. He was just as guilty and deserved the same punishment. And so one by one, the people drop their stones and leave. And the woman is left there alone with Jesus. And Jesus is riding in the dirt. 
I wish I knew what he'd been writing. And she says, you know, she stands there and she says, does, does nobody condemn you? And she says, no, sir. She actually uses the word Lord. She's referring to him as the Lord Jesus. And he says, well, then I don't condemn you either. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 17, that he came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The proper response to mercy received on account of past sins is purity in the future. I like the way that that sounds, so I want to play it back one more time. The proper response to mercy received on account of past sins is purity in the future. You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, Visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook, Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now, more from Pastor Derek in our series called We Believe, focusing on the Gospel of John. We pray that as a result of this series, you will see new faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are are following after him in obedience and love, you have received mercy. All of your sins have been forgiven completely. And the only fitting response, the only fitting response is a life of holiness. The Christian is never obedient in order to get salvation. The Christian is holy because of salvation. And if you have received, see, like salvation comes, it's a free gift of God from the very beginning to the very end. And if you have received salvation, if you've received mercy, if you've been forgiven, the appropriate response is to be holy. And then Jesus continues on and talks about who he is. I mentioned last week that Jesus is teaching in the context of what was called the Feast of Booths. It was the harvest festival that commemorated the time that the people of Israel lived in tents and in booths in the wilderness. And at the time of harvest, the olive and grape harvest, the people would come into Jerusalem and they would participate in this festival that was characterized by two great rituals. One was a water ritual. We talked about that last week. Water would be drawn from a well and a huge procession would go into the temple courts and it would be placed into special silver bowls and then poured out before the Lord. And in the context of all of that, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and I will give him living water and and streams of living water will flow from him. Right after that would take place, there was a light ritual. There's an early Jewish text called the Mishnah and it says, he who has not seen the joy of the place of water drawing has never in his life seen joy. And then, then it gives a description of the light ritual. Four huge lamps in the temple were lit And an exuberant celebration took place under their light. The Mishnah says, Men of piety and good works danced through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs of praise. And and D.A. Carson says that the Levitical orchestras that were in the temple would just cut loose. And some sources would say that this would go on every night with the light from the temple being so substantial that anywhere in Jerusalem you could see the glow from the temple courts because the light was so great. And in the context of all of this, of the temple being ablaze with light, 
Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Both when he talks about water and when he talks about light, he's referencing the activity that's taking place in the temple and saying that all is fulfilled in me. He says, I am the water. I am the light. True water and true light can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of these are vivid, descriptive realities that tell us about who Jesus is. The light of the presence of God had been what led the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt and into the promised land. That light of the presence of God is what shielded and protected the people of Israel from their enemies. The Israelites would sing in Psalm 27 verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The word of God, the law of God is said to be a light to guide the path of those who cherish instruction in Psalm 119. God's light shines everywhere in salvation, says Habakkuk chapter 3. Light is the Lord God in action, says Psalm 44 verse 3. And Isaiah says that the servant of God will be sent to bring light all across the earth to the ends of the earth. And, and maybe most clear of all, Zechariah chapter 14 verses 5 through 9 say this. And it's, it's just, just note this about Zechariah chapter 14, 5 through 9. It's a promise of when the Lord God himself will come to dwell with his people. And what Zechariah 14, 5 through 9 says is this. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light cold or frost and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord neither day nor night but at evening time there shall be a light and on that day living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea it shall continue in summer as in winter and the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day the Lord will be one and his name one here's what that means Many generations before Jesus makes this claim about he himself being water and he himself being the light, Zechariah had said that when the Lord comes to his people, you will know that it's happening because streams of living water will start to flow from Jerusalem and there will be a specific light that dawns. And Jesus says, and this is happening and it's me that these festivals are talking about, that these prophecies are about. I am the light. But Jesus doesn't just lay it out. He doesn't just say, hey, this is all concluded and completed in me. He then issues a challenge. He gives you the consequences of all of this. I am the light of the world, he says. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In a world of chaos and confusion and doubt and sin and cruelty and oppression and injustice, and all of it dark, Jesus says, I am the light that will shine in the midst of all of that darkness. And if you follow me, you're going to be able to see your way through. Psalm 36 verse 9 says, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. My son recently started becoming afraid of the dark He had no issue with going to sleep in a pitch dark room until a couple of months ago when he asked if we could give him a night light and if we could leave the door cracked so that the light from the hallway would come in and illuminate the dark of his room. And I think his instincts are good and right. 
There's very little that can develop such severe panic as if you're in a place where you cannot see and you're not sure where you are. I remember one time I found myself shut into a room that was so dark that I couldn't see my hand right in front of my face that I was moving back and forth. I didn't know where I was. I wasn't sure how to get out. As I moved forward, I felt more and more lost. I couldn't even come up against a wall. And the panic that started growing inside of me was complete because I was like, I do not know how to get out of here. I am not sure where I am. And it is utterly terrifying. And in all of that, Jesus promises, if you follow me, your steps don't need to be uncertain. You won't get more and more lost because he is the source of light. He will guide you through the night and keep you safe till morning light. The morning of his return When you're following after him, you can see your next step and know that it's going to be safe. That the ground is secure as you take a step in front of you. That you're not going to miss and fall, hurt yourself. You can be assured that no darkness will be deep enough to smother his light. You'll be able to see and you'll be safe if you follow Jesus. We should follow him. And then Jesus talks about how he's truth too. He says, you will know the truth And the truth will set you free. This bothers the people. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know what part bothers them? Saying that they can be set free. They're upset. They say that, hey, we're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. So they're angry that he would say, you will become free if you are one of my disciples and you abide in me. And then he explains what he means. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And Jesus is absolutely correct, obviously. I mean, he is God. But here he is absolutely correct. This principle holds all the way down. If you give yourself to sin, you'll become mastered by it and enslaved by it. Sin takes you further than you want to go and faster than you want to get there. And what you find is that this thing which you assume you are freely engaging in will become your master and you will become enslaved to it. I will use an illustration that is, uh, that's not about sin, but just is about the nature of how things enslave us, about how you are not as free as you assume you might be. So I have talked about, uh, I've talked about New Year's resolutions every sermon I've preached in January. So I get today and next week, then I won't mention New Year's resolutions anymore. I promise you're probably like, stop using New Year's resolutions as an illustration. I get one more week after this. So anyway, so many people make New Year's resolutions. Most of those don't make it out of January. And the reason is we are not as free as we imagine ourselves to be. We are captive to our own habits, our own ways of thinking, our own ways of operating. If we were people who were truly free, there would never be any going back on New Year's resolutions. It'd be like, all right, I made it. And now I've totally changed my life because I have decided that my life is going to be different. And yet people are like, you know what? I gave up sugar. I lasted four days. And then I was like, I can't handle it anymore. And I had to go back. That indicates a certain level of slavery. Now, let me be clear. Thanks be to God. Eating sugar is not a sin. I I would be in deep trouble if it were. I would need, I don't know, some major counseling and help if eating sugar were sin. But the fact that you can't or that so many decide they're not going to and then like last four days and are like I just had to do it again indicates that you are not as free as you believe yourself to be sugar is unhealthy uh, and if you have it in overmuch it will cause some uh, it'll cause some negative consequences and a lot of people find they're uh, 
unable to get free of it. If you're engaged in sin, it's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like sugar on sugar. It's like, uh, it's like if you could somehow do both. You know, it's like it at first seems like that thing that you wanted, but what sin will do is it will enslave you and it will master you. And Jesus says that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And the kind of freedom that he offers is being free from all of your sin. It tells us that truth actually has an intellectual component, but also a moral component to it. Truth is fully truth if if we are engaged in mind and body and holiness and righteousness. And as we pursue Christ Jesus, body and soul, mind and spirit, as we follow after him, that is the way to truly be free, to turn your back on sin and to follow after God. American freedom is not this. As we talk about freedom in a political sense, we talk about freedom from outward constraints, the freedom to do whatever we want. If I'm not harming another person, I should be able to do whatever I want. Christian freedom, Christian freedom is the freedom not to do whatever we want. Christian freedom is the freedom of a self-discipline exercise in the power of the Holy Spirit and following after the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what real freedom is. You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. This is Pastor Derek Bukema, and on behalf of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, we want to thank you for your support and partnership in proclaiming the gospel here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. If you're looking for a local church to call home, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday. You can find all the details online at groundedandgrowingradio.com. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, may God bless you.